Doing church planning work, one of the things that we did when we actually began to zero in on a, on a target audience, the people that we were actually going to reach out to, we just kind of thought that if people drive 24 minutes to work every day, they're not going to think a whole lot about driving 24 minutes to church. I'm just curious, how many of you drive 15 to 20 minutes just to get here? Let me see your hands. Yeah, everybody just t- t- look around, look at, look, put those hands back up, let everybody see that. Thank you. And uh, I believe a church alive is worth the drive, don't you? Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series, We Love Cedar Rapids, by turning in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2, and I want to invite you to do that. Acts chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided immediately in front of you in the chair, just in, in front of you. And this is another one of those passages that I think for me is just really rich with insight because it, it gives us a glimpse into the dynamics that made the early church or the beginnings of the early church so, so memorable and impactful. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to, to follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, and listen to these words of our Lord. Those who accepted His message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. How many of you believe that you've ever witnessed a miraculous sign or a wonder of God in your life? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Now everybody turn around and look at those hands. Come on, stick them up. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's something that's part of the normative of the Christian experience. We serve a supernatural God, and God does supernatural things in our midst. And then look at verse 44. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. For those of us to have a better understanding of what's really taking place here, I want us to do just a little recap of of what's happened as, as Kent's preached in the past few weeks. Jesus has just recently been tried and convicted and crucified and buried. And then appears to numerous groups resurrected as the victor of sin and the one who now holds the keys of both death and hell. And then during one of these resurrection appearances, Jesus turns to his disciples and he instructs them to wait for him in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which we know now was the coming of the Holy Spirit who who comes to equip and, and empower the church, that's us, people like us, to be representatives and ambassadors of his kingdom to, to our Jerusalems, our Judeas, our Samarias, and to the othermost part of the earth. And our focus in this series is just learning how to love people within the closest proximity to us, our neighbors. And then Jesus ascends into the heavens with this promise that at his second coming, he's going to come back the exact same way that these early disciples watch him ascend into heaven in the clouds. Now, I have a confession. Back in August of 1981, when I rededicated my life to the Lord and recognized that there was a call in my life for ministry, I I was still in the Navy, and I was a part of an Airedale squadron. I was attached to aircraft, and when that airplane flew, I, I flew with it. And I was a part of one of the only two spy squadrons that the Navy had, and we were the eyes for the entire um, Atlantic and Mediterranean fleet. 
And every morning we would get up and there would be hundreds of us, about 300 of us, we would get up in one line and we would walk all the way across the flight line and it was called a FOD walk, foreign object damage. And as we walked across that, if we found a piece of wire, we picked that up. If we found a little piece of paper, we picked that up. A rock, we picked that up. Because all of those become dangerous projectiles when you're working around jet aircraft and turboprops. It can do damage in it, and it can hurt people. And I just have to admit that this verse always spoke to me, that Jesus promised that he would come back the same way that they watched him go. And so every day when it would get cloudy, I would get just a little bit excited. I have to admit, I've been living up north now for almost 20 years, and this excitement's kind of paled a little bit because it's cloudy a lot. But, the, but this passage still motivates me. And now we find this small band of men and women known as disciples. About 120 of them, they're, they're gathering together in this upper room in one of the porches of the temple, and I think this is where this happened. One of the things that the Bible doesn't tell us that history does is that Solomon's temple was huge. This was a huge place. The corridors and and the porches were vast. In fact, it was so large that just the hallways and the porches, as estimated, could have contained over 200,000 people. Now, that's a big place. That's vast. We think this 30 acres in this church is huge, but the temple in Jerusalem was massive. It was on a monumental scale. And they're there, and they're, they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then it happens. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, just like Joel had prophesied 500 years before. The Bible says that He comes like a mighty rushing wind and rests upon each of the believers who are waiting in that upper room with these cloven flames of fire. And they begin to speak in tongues and languages and everybody hears them in their native tongues. But something monumental, more monumental than just the language takes place here. And and I think we miss that sometimes, and that's what I want us to focus on. The final expression of the people of God before the return of the Lord is born, and it's called the church. Each of us are a part of it. It's birthed during the day of Pentecost. And I think one of the clearest signs of this monumental event of the New Testament church is that the church becomes a spirit-empowered body that represents the Lord Jesus Christ on planet Earth. We're called to a mission that is bigger than us. It's bigger than our families. It's, It's bigger than our immediate circles of influence through which we live our lives. And it calls us to the global proclamation that Jesus Christ alone is God. And there's no other. You know, that these 120 who are gathered in the upper room could speak in other languages as a a spirit who had now come to live within them, empowered them, really should be no surprise to those of us who know and walk with Jesus. I asked you earlier how many of you believe that you'd witnessed a, a sign or a wonder, and a number of hands went up. A third of the hands in this congregation went up. His ministry's always been surprising. And I guess for me, it's not the element of surprise that gets me. It's the result of what he does in the lives of people who surround me. So I I live my life with an expectation of God doing things bigger and better and beyond me. If any of you are raising children today, that's a good thing to believe in. (laughs) In fact, I believe that this is Peter's defense in his sermon when he preaches, and it concludes just before our text this morning in verse 41. The message of the cross of Christ that Peter preaches is so powerful that 3,000 souls are convicted of their sins. They repent of their sins. They turn around. They're willing to walk a different direction. 
And now they make a very calculated decision to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Messiah and then commit their lives to follow the teachings of Christ as the central idea of their lives. And here's a question that I have that I ask myself. J.R., are you living your life today with, with the teachings of Jesus being the central idea? Or are you so caught up with the busyness and the other affairs of life that your Christian ideas and values are just ornaments to the tree? Are you really rooted? Are you really drawing from, from the direction of the Spirit of God who lives in you? Are you really following the teachings of Jesus? And I'm here to let you know that if you're not in the Word daily, it's easy to drift away from the things of God. That if you're a believer, you need to tap into the source. You need to tap into the teachings of Jesus. And this becomes one of the central ideas and values that the early church embodies. I would say, in short, this is a disciple. And these scenes here in the book of Acts complete the circle of discipleship. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the strategy of the master, the way that Jesus taught people. And here's what the circle of discipleship looks for me. I'm a simple guy, and I have to keep things kind of simple. Jesus came, and he said, follow me. I will do, you watch. Then he said, now you go do, and I'll watch. And here at Pentecost, we see this come full circle. He says, now you teach others to do, and together, you the apostles as the leaders of the church, and me as the head of the church, Jesus is speaking, we will watch. So the circle is, I do, you watch. You do, I watch. Others do, we watch. And I think the thing that makes this experience at Pentecost and these characteristics of the church so important to me is that Jesus had told them about a time. In fact, he said this in in John chapter 14. Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples, and he said, he said, a time you, you live now, and you understand who the Holy Spirit is because he's, he's with you. But he said, a day is coming when he will be in you. And I, I think this is that event. That Pentecost is that event where the role of the Holy Spirit, who in the Old Testament came upon people to equip them and empower them for temporary assignments, now that changes. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes to make permanent residency inside the heart of believers, never to leave us, never to forsake us, always to guide us, always to be our teacher in the things of righteousness and truth. And now these apostles who are following the instructions of Jesus are doing the very same thing. They're spending their lives, pouring their lives in to this group, 3,000 souls who had given themselves to Christ at Peter's sermon. Now, the population of Jerusalem during Pentecost is said to have doubled or tripled. The population swells so much, it's estimated that Jerusalem was a town of thirty to 40,000 people, and Pentecost was the greatest attended celebration of all of the temple gatherings. It was the springtime of the year, the traveling was best, and they said that the ranks of Jerusalem swelled from the normal thirty to 40,000, what is what the population was, to more than a quarter of a million people. Can you imagine that? Now, several years ago, I, I went to an archery event in Ames, Iowa. <clears throat> and I'd bought this brand new tent. Man, I was proud of it. It was about an $850 tent, and I'd got it in the bargain cave at Cabela's, at two different Cabela's, over a two-year period for about $140. 
This is the first time I had it all together, and I set it up, and I had my son with me, and we got ready to climb in. And I mean, this tent was built to withstand five years in the Yukon. They set it up, and for five years it took the weather of the Yukon. My son and I, we climbed in. We got inside of our sleeping bags, man. We had our little light, and gosh, we, were ju- we just thought we were at home, kind of. We were having a blast. And all of a sudden, we started feeling things crawl all over us. It kept the water out, but this tent had holes in the corners that allowed it to breathe, and we'd been invaded by those itty-bitty little black ants. Oh, my goodness. There were hundreds of them. They were in our sleeping bags. They were crawling all over us. What I didn't know is my son had had some starbursts. And he'd left them in on the floor, and they'd smelt that, and they detected it, and came in, and they were just everywhere. And I just, you know, I just don't like things crawling all over me. So I said, get up, Drew. We're going to go get a hotel. I mean, my, my mountain man, adv- you know, adventures had come to an end. So we got up, and we couldn't find a hotel because there were softball tournaments in town. Every hotel in Ames was full. We actually had to drive about 20 miles away just to find a little hole in the wall someplace where at least we could, we could shower and we could wash the ants off of us. And uh, how many of you have ever traveled somewhere to maybe go to a ball game or something and you wanted to stay down in the downtown area near the arena, wherever you were at, only to discover that some convention or something was in town and all of the hotels near the area where you wanted to stay were full? Let me see your hands. Yeah, see? We've been there, done that. I think that's what's happening in Jerusalem. People who came for Passover, 50 days later, I mean, I mean, they see Jesus crucified 50 days later. This promise of the Father that they'd been encouraged to wait in Jerusalem for comes. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, comes to take a permanent residency inside the heart of those who believe. And it's so exciting. It changes people. I don't think anybody wants to go home. In fact, so Jerusalem's grown from 30 to 40,000 to a quarter of a million people. And bottom line is there's no room in the end for people. But the Spirit of God has came in and transformed the hearts of men and women. And they began to implement four common characteristics that really become the backbone of the church. Wherever you find her, wherever you find a remnant of the church throughout the globe, you'll find these common characteristics. A group of people who give of themselves to the teachings of the apostles. Now, get this. Not the way the apostles interpreted the teachings of Jesus. The real teachings of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I do, you follow. Then he said, you do, while, while I watch. Then he said, now you go tell others to do while together we watch. There was a very, a very committed discipleship process that these men were involved with. And I've never made this connection before until I was writing this sermon. I got to thinking about the four and the 5,000 people that needs who Jesus met. Remember, there's, there's one in Matthew 15 where, where he feeds the 4,000. And the Bible says that crowds of people just continued to follow Jesus. They just kept coming and kept coming. And he ministered to the blind and to the crippled and to the mute and performed all kinds of miracles. And then the Bible says that the heart of Jesus was moved with compassion. Because these people had now been following him for three days. And the apostles, the disciples, man, they're done. They're ready for these people to go home. But Jesus wants more. He wants to give them more. Then I thought about that. Isn't That's the nature of the God we serve. He's the one who's more than enough. 
One of the names to which he reveals himself to us is the El Shaddai. Everybody say El Shaddai. It literally means the many-breasted one. It's a name that means that God is more than enough. He can nourish. He can strengthen. He can encourage. He is more than enough than for whatever you need. The disciples are ready for this crowd of 4,000. That's just the men, not counting the women and children. He wants to, they want them to go home, but Jesus says, No, I don't want to send them home hungry. Let's feed them. And they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they look around, and they find a young man who has seven loaves and a few fish. And you know the story. Jesus blesses it. He breaks bread. And they feed everybody. So much so that there are seven baskets of leftovers, guys. How many of you like leftovers? Oh, I do too. I'm telling you, I think Jesus did. Every time, every time he served big crowds, there were leftovers. When I read these words in our text, understanding what's going on in Jerusalem, that the place is swollen beyond its capacity to hold people, And everybody's so excited out of this quarter of a million. Let's say there's a quarter of a million people there. Only 3,000 give their lives to Christ. I mean, that's not a lot from that big of a crowd, but that's still a lot of people. You know, I've had three daughters get married, and I've had to pick up the tab on the receptions. I wouldn't have wanted to pick up the reception on 3,000. Jesus doesn't think anything of it. I just wonder when these pillars of the church, these shared common characteristics of giving themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not just prayer singular, but prayers plural. Many kinds of prayers, many ways to pray. I just wonder if they reflected back on the days when they were in Galilee. Or at the end of three days of these people hearing the teachings of Jesus and receiving from his ministry, they recalled his words when he said, let's feed them too, guys. I bet they did. When I read these words, my heart is moved. You know, we we really have no way of knowing how many people were actually there when Peter preached his first sermon. Are you kidding me? 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus based on what this common fisherman has to say? Look at verse 42. Let's look at those. It says, We're told that they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And as as important as these four characteristics are, I'm convinced that they're really not responsible for the success and the explosive growth of the church. Because the church doesn't stop with the 3,000. The Bible says that the Lord continues to add daily that God gave them favor amongst the people. And when we come to the end of, of Acts chapter 4, now there's 5,000 people. So we see explosive growth. And we see such explosive growth that the traditional Jewish leaders now feel threatened by it. And it's not very long after that that they commission a man by the name of Saul who becomes Paul. You know, he writes like two-thirds of the New Testament. We know him. Launched a severe persecution against the early formed way. And the Bible tells us in Acts 8 that everybody was forced to go back home except the apostles who chose to stay. I think the thing that's responsible 
for the growth of the church is the oneness and the commonness that they all share together in Christ. Because things have changed. The church has been bored, and the Holy Spirit who used to be with them now lives where? In them. God becomes the driving, the motivating force in their life, and it changes their worlds. It changes the world so much that 2,000 years later, we're gathering here in a worship center together, rehearsing this same story. God had come to make His permanent abode and His permanent dwelling. He he came to, to make His home, so to speak, inside of the hearts of us. And that changes people. People who are ridden with guilt are freed from that guilt. People who can't Get, or can't, can't get forgiveness, experience forgiveness when they ask for forgiveness and repent of their sins in Jesus. I mean, Jesus changes things. When His Spirit comes to take up residency inside of us, we can't help but be changed. We're talking about loving our neighbors. One of the things that I've always appreciated about the Reformed Church is the Reformed Church has always had an understanding of the people of God, that the church has always existed in God's mind. In the Old Testament, it was called the Qualida, the the people of God, those who were drawn out, the chosen people of God. But even then, there were always allowances made for Gentiles to to become God-fearers and even proselytes of the Jewish people. There's always been these shadows and these types and these entryways for people who didn't know Yahweh to discover Him and to walk with the chosen people of God. And here in Acts, the church is given birth to. And people are changed. I mean, what does it mean for for us to be changed by the transformational power of the Holy Spirit? I would hope there are similarities for all of us, but I would hope that there are unique differences for each of us too. Because each of us are created so unique, so uniquely that after God made you, He broke the mold. I'm glad there's nobody else like me or I wouldn't be necessary. Aren't you? That your life is so unique. God has chosen to live inside of you. He calls you the temple of God. That the life you live, the story that you have, is designed to have impact on the lives of people that you do life with. And my presence here today is proof of the power of the gospel. But the roles we serve and the ways in which we serve Cedar Rapids and our neighbors, even one another, will really be the legacies that we leave behind. Last night I Laid down. My wife is back in Sioux Falls visiting some of our children. And I laid down and I shut the TV off and I just laid there in, in the stillness of the dark, hearing nothing but the fan. Imagine that. I, I, I'd travel everywhere with a fan. And I was lying there and I just opened up my arms and I, I just, I had heavenly thoughts about the return of the Lord and the goodness of God. I just began to give him thanks for my life. 
for the stories that he's let me tell, for the people I've been able to connect with. And then in my mind's eye, I saw every one of my children. And I began to evaluate their relationship with God, and I can tell you I wasn't, I wasn't as happy about all of that as I was about mine. And it motivated me to pray and to be thankful. Because one of the things mature believers understand is that God doesn't miss a trick. He takes every curve and can turn it into a straight path. And the, one of the things that keep us on that path is being a part of a body like this. A body that's committed to following the teachings of Jesus Christ. Not satisfied with some denomination's idea of what they think those say. I think those should always be challenged and questioned. I mean, crying out loud, I'm 56 years old, and my beliefs today are very different than what they were when I was 35, than when I was 40. And I like to think that as I surround myself with other believers, that it becomes truer to the true expressions and the teachings of Jesus as I make allowances for my life to be corrected. Giving of yourselves to the teachings of Jesus as being the very center idea is huge and paramount. The fellowship with one another, the breaking of bread with one another, a meal that always ended with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and we get to do that this morning. You know, we get to do all of these this morning. But the thing that makes the difference on Pentecost is God coming to live inside of you and coming to live inside of me. He's changed us. The legacy that we live, leave, will be determined by the life that we live, by how we give ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Amen. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and let's enter into a time of personal reflection and confession and repentance and invite the Holy Spirit to look inside of our hearts as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Elders, would you please come forward?